Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey everybody, welcome to this week's podcast. It is only the second week in 2022, but we're already implementing some of the big changes to Retro RGB that I've been talking about. We have a potential new sponsor, there's been some pretty big things going on in the scene, and there's a lot more contributors that have already started this week, and hopefully a bunch more to come. Because over the years, Retro RGB was always supposed to be about something that celebrated the community. At first, it was just about being uh, the middleman curator of all of the different knowledge of the retro gaming scene, crediting everybody where possible and taking all of those mods and info and putting it in one place. And then as I started doing interviews and different news posts, it started to be a lot more focused on celebrating the people in retro gaming. And one of the things that I haven't done as good of a job of that I wished I could have is doing even more to celebrate those people and the projects that they work on. So as you've probably noticed in the past couple of weeks, I've asked people that I trust to come up and post their own stuff on retro RGB. And I think they've done exactly what I have hoped for. They posted parts of the work that they do that they think people in the community that listen to this podcast would be interested in, and also that gives them more exposure, and hopefully people that are really, really into that stuff will follow them back to their channels, subscribe where wherever they uh, post their stuff, and, and kind of help all of us grow together. So this week is another step further towards that, and I hope to be a lot more changes like that in 2022. And in fact, some pretty big changes that I really hope will accomplish the goal of promoting a heck of a lot more people, growing the site even more, and hopefully still allowing me to pay my bills at the same time. I'm going to try to not screw this up for any one of us, including me, but either way, hopefully this is going to be a great year with a lot of big things. And check out today's podcast uh, right now just to see a lot of that in action. First up, Marcus has just released a new firmware for the open source scan converter that adds the ability to export your profiles. So this is important for a few things. First, if you manually dialed everything in with the remote and everything's exactly the way you like it, before you would have to write down by hand every single setting, and now you could just export it to your micro SD card and whenever you need to share them, or if you have multiple OSSCs, if you do a reset, whatever else, you could just restore right with this and everything is exactly the way that you had it. The other cool thing is sharing profiles that you've discovered and worked out by hand or even people who have created their profiles using that very handy online tool, but then went in and dialed in phase for all of their consoles. Because even though the general settings will all be the same, phase will be different on everybody's combination of console, cable, everything else in the mix. And even if people have two identical everything, it's still going to be different for each setup. So people who take the time to go and set their phase for each one for optimal profiles can now do that 
export your settings and same thing if you ever need to restore it you don't have to do anything anymore you just import them right back in so while this might not be a setting that people are that might get people excited or anything like that um, i think there are a handful of people especially ones that do a lot of customizations that would really appreciate this so thanks to marcus for always updating these products and uh, i'm definitely looking forward to seeing what happens with the ossc pro but for now at least the original ossc is still getting updates and is still an awesome piece of equipment Next, Tito from Macho Nacho Productions just posted his review of the Analog Pocket, and he did it in the same style that he does all of the other handheld reviews, which is excellent. I absolutely loved the Digital Foundry and the My Life in Gaming review of the Pocket, but I strongly recommend adding this to the list as well, because he didn't try to copy what everybody else did, Tito just kept doing the exact same point of view and expertise that he puts into all of the other handheld-based videos, and it, it was a really cool perspective to see. So if you're interested in the analog pocket, it seems like a very cool device. Uh, I still haven't even opened the box with mine in it yet, but I really feel like I know exactly what to expect and things that I want to specifically look for because of all of these really great reviews. So if you are curious about it, this one is definitely what I would consider a must-watch. This week's podcast is sponsored by JLC PCB, a company that could make your PCBs for your retro gaming projects starting at just $2, with shipping options ranging from almost nothing all the way up to pretty expensive, but arrives very quickly. I've been shocked at how fast some of my orders from JLC PCB have arrived. So they really have everything covered for people in the gaming scene who want to make their own products and have it show up well-made and quickly. And normally I would just do a 30-second ad spot talking about that, but recently I've been trying to find sponsors for this podcast, and I've been picky because I don't want to just look for people to pay me to do this. I want to find partners in retro gaming, and I especially want to find people that'll look at all of the indie makers in the retro gaming scene and see customers and future potential partners, not competition or anything like that. So I reached out to JLC PCB, they were super friendly, and we decided to do a test ad and see how it goes from here. But actions speak louder than words, so I'm going to go in and show you at least a small portion of my history of ordering PCBs from them. And you'll probably notice some pretty noticeable projects like the triple bypass and some of the coupler stuff, and I got to Stop scrolling pretty much right now, otherwise I'm going to get into top secret things I'm not supposed to talk about yet. But I just wanted to show you all that this isn't just a sponsored ad. These are companies that I'm trying to work with. And JLC PCB has been part of the retro gaming scene for a while now, helping us make some very, very cool stuff. So fingers crossed, let's hope to a fun partnership for all of us, because I want to see everybody grow. I want to see small indie makers make their stuff, sell it, and grow big enough so that they can send their large orders to JLC PCB, and we could all get our products and our cool new inventions made through all of these awesome partners. So thanks to JLC PCB for sponsoring this one, and hopefully you'll see more stuff from them each week where I talk about different services they offer, how to take advantage of them, and other ways that we could use JLC PCB for our needs. This week we have not one, but two English fan translations of Sega Dreamcast games from Wired Crackpot and Derek Pascarella. 
The first is a game, Radergy, which was originally released on the Sega, Sega Naomi in the arcades. And while you don't really need the dialogue in order to complete the game, it's pretty cool to always have that stuff. Because there was a few shooters I've played over the years where I was kind of like, all right, this is ridiculous, let's just get on. And there were other shooters where not only was it nice to take a breather from some of the bullet hell craziness, but they had good stories that were fun to read. So uh, I haven't tried both of these. Luckily, there's demo videos of both right here in the post, but it certainly seems like something worth doing, and I'm always super appreciative of that. The next game was Chaos Field, and that one was actually done and expected to be done by taking the Dream or the GameCube version and importing the English script into the Dreamcast version. But when Derek took it apart, he realized that 80% of the game's English dialogue was already in the game itself. So it looks like the creators had already started to do the translation and then just never bothered for whatever reason. So it turned out to be easier than he originally expected, which is why we were able to get two of these awesome ones out. And uh, also, because of this post, I would like to welcome Pat uh, Treano Co. from Sega Saturn Shiro as his first post. And this is an example of exactly what I was hoping for. Pat came in and used his knowledge to do a great post that sums up everything that you could want to know about these in a much better way than I could have because of his previous knowledge of the games and the translation efforts. But on top of that, he was able to drop in Sega Saturn Shiro YouTube account videos showing the gameplay of both of these, as well as links back to their site with a lot more info. And this is the dream right here. I get to promote a whole bunch of people in one post, and I get to send them back to other people's uh, sites and YouTube accounts and everything else to get more info out there and to get more things exposed. And, you know, most importantly as well, we get to really celebrate the translators who are taking the time to do all of this stuff. So this is just an entire circle of awesome all in one post. (laughs) Thanks to everybody, to Wired Crackpot, to Derek, to Pat, to the Sega Saturn Shiro team. Heck, thanks to all of you for paying attention to this. This is like happiness all in a post right here. So thanks to everybody. Welcome, Pat. Awesome first post. And uh, I'm really looking forward to trying both of these on Dreamcast because I really love shmup style games and both of these look unique and interesting. The developer Zaiden, who's been working on the fan-supported Sega Saturn Netlink project, has just brought back some functionality to the game Sega Touring Car Championship that many people might not have known ever existed. They had some Netlink features that allowed you to all collaborate on online leaderboards, an online website, uh, plus some tricks and tips. Why is that always a tongue twister for me? (laughs) And a bunch of other things. Uh, Zaiden also worked on translating it from Japanese to English and made sure that if you already have a Saturn Netlink setup, you're able to get this just by connecting the way you normally would. So this is the type of thing where if you've already gone through the trouble to set up your Saturn Netlink and and now you're all excited about it, of course you're going to want to do this too, because why not? Now you have a very cool feature that most people probably didn't even know exist back in the day, and now you could do it with other Saturn fans. But this post was written by Dave from Sega Saturn Shiro, so this isn't just a, an announcement of a very cool thing that was added by Zaiden. Dave also went through and put exactly what you would need to set up and access these features on your Saturn, setting up DreamPi, getting your Saturn Netlink modem taken care of, 
all of the software that you would need. I mean, this is such a badass post. I would not have the knowledge to do this. I would have to learn from scratch, and I'm so appreciative to have this on RetroRGB right now. But Dave also went in to show you how you could submit your scores and really just how all of this stuff works. So I'm very excited to have this on here. I'm sure there's a lot of people that are going to really appreciate the project and appreciate the work that went into it, but go, oh, you know, that's not quite for me. And I think there's also going to be a stack of people that go, holy crap, I could do that with my Saturn Netlink now. I'm totally going to try this out. And I love that. I love that this is kind of for everybody here. So check out everything if you're interested and also make sure to scroll through the whole post because there's also links back to Shiro videos that explain how to get your Saturn online as well as even an interview with Sega RGB, RGB fan, RPG fan. Gee, I wonder how many times I've said RGB that that's burned into my brain. But that's uh, certainly a, an interesting podcast to listen to if you want to know more about Netlink and X-Band and all of that other stuff and how it pertains to the Sega Saturn. So thanks very much to Dave for his first contribution. Sorry for tongue-twisting myself so many, so many times in this one, but hopefully everybody got the point through. And now for this week's general Mr. Update. And that's right, thanks to Lou from Lou's Retro Source, we have that now. Uh, I'm very excited to introduce this first one, but I'm just going to take a moment, which I normally wouldn't uh, going forward, but I wanted to talk a little bit about how we got here and why we're doing it this way. But as everybody who follows the channel knows, I have a bad habit of getting myself into way too many projects and I can't keep up. So as much as I am a massive fan of the Mr. Project and I really love all of the aspects of it, I haven't had the time to keep up with all of the amazing stuff going on. I read all of the Patreon updates and I'm kind of in the loop that way, but I haven't really had the time to compile it into one weekly post. And then I've been seeing Lou pop up here and there doing pretty much exactly that making very good videos that just keep everybody in the loop of what's going on in Mr. Uh, and then I was listening to Lewis's podcast, uh, Zez Retro, and who pops on but Lou from Lou's Retro Source. So I figured this was a perfect time to reach out and just say, hey, would you be interested in collaborating? I really want to go through and have a weekly update that just very quickly goes through the updates and uh, points back to somebody else for more info. And Lou is down to collaborate, so that's what it's going to be like hopefully every week i don't want to put any pressure on anybody because i know what it's like to put a lot of pressure on yourself to keep up with the deadline but it might not be weekly so i guess let's just call it regular mr updates and when i get these i'll always just kind of skim through and let you know quickly what has been added and go to loose youtube channel if you want more details or of course if there's one thing that's added that you're super passionate about check out wherever it was first posted and get all of the information and all of the the normal places that you would go for all the details on mister and of course load it up and try it yourself uh, but this week there were a few things to note first Developer Robert Pipe has done the beginnings of the sound portion of the core for the PlayStation core, which is pretty exciting. Robert's come a long way in a short period of time, and I'm very excited to see how that project progresses. And now uh, it's getting to the point where in his software emulator, he's gotten 24 channel SPU sound working. And that's kind of how Robert works is he'll do everything on his software emulation first and then go in and implement it into the FPGA core. If you want more info, check out the interview I did with him, uh, but it's pretty interesting. Next, developer Hotego has released a beta, beta core of the arcade RoboCop game to his Patreon subscribers. The core is based on the Bad Dudes core since those games ran on the same hardware. 
Hotego also just released another beta core for Konami's Super Basketball, which this game was the predecessor to Double Dribble that would eventually be ported to the NES and become a classic. A new arcade core for the Mister has also been released. Uh, this is for the game Subs by Atari, and it was ported to the Mister by Alan SWX and Jason A. There's also been a ton of implementations and fixes to the shadow masks. Uh, I know I've been following Trash Uncle and all of his updates on those. I've only had a little bit of time to spend with them, but it, everything's looking great. And you're starting to be able to implement them a little bit easier. You know, Mr. is a tech-faced or a tech-focused project. So they usually do things like throw in the functionality first and then kind of make it easier to, to access in the menus after, which I think is the right way to do it in a project like this. Um, and all of the masks have been amazing, and I've really been enjoying seeing how this has evolved and how we've come in such a short period of time from a bunch of horizontal lines across the screen to actual mask recreation like this. So if you want more info on Lou, please check out the interview with Lewis. Uh, and if you want more details on all of these, please check out his video because he goes into much more detail about each of these to the point where I'll probably just skim it even quicker next time uh, so that you can go direct to the source. Lou's retro source. God, that was terrible. I feel like I was a pushing up roses joke. Redhead high five. But yeah, go to <laughs> check out Lou's video in this post for more info. Here's a quick one. Castlemania Games has just listed a triad power supply that's compatible with both of the Duo consoles, the Turbo Duo and the PC Engine Duo. And there's also two versions of the adapter in the same link. So click on the link, which is uh, just retrorgb.link forward slash Duo Triad. Try to keep it easy. And um, select whether you want the international or the North American version. The only thing to note is that that is just talking about where you will be plugging it in. Both of these power supplies work with both Duo consoles. But if you live in North America, buy that one because it's a little cheaper. And if you plan on using these in multiple places worldwide, buy the international. I just want to make sure I'm clear in case anybody is walking during their commute or something. You don't need the international one to work on the PC Engine version. You just need wherever the location you're at to decide with the power supply. And that's the same with all of them. So if you would like more of these Triad PSUs, which I strongly recommend if you're having any power supply issues, that's the only thing to keep in mind. If you're in North America... Even if you're using a Mega Drive or, or anything from around the world, just get the North American PSU. International ones or worldwide PSUs or however you want to say it are just to, uh, made to adapt to plugs all over the world and different power sources. So save some money if you're just in North America. If not, you're stuck with the other one, but at least you now have the option to use it absolutely everywhere. Uh, and if you're unfamiliar with the triads, the reason everybody's using them is because they've been consistently tested with specific hardware methods of testing, oscilloscopes, MD4EA, etc. And they are consistently awesome. I talked about this a couple of months ago on a different podcast about why I promote these and not others. And it is not a, you know, a backhanded slap in the face to other PSUs. It's just simply that every time we've ever grabbed one off the shelf and tested it, it's worked the way that we've needed it and consistency is so important with this stuff so if you got a turbo duo or a pc engine duo and you weren't sure if the power supply was good if you have a no-name third-party power supply or even if you just imported a pc engine duo and you want to use it in the u.s definitely check out these power supplies and as well as the links to all the others if you're interested 
Pixel Effects have just announced that they'll be releasing two products this year. One of them you've probably heard about, and the other one should be brand new. The first is the Morph. They're a scaler that should be able to go up to 1440p and have all inputs supported or all input signal types supported, including HDMI. I believe they're accepting the analog inputs over BNC, which I think is an interesting experiment and probably a great choice because you could adapt everything to BNC and you could do it much easy, much easier than other formats, simply because when you're talking about breaking something out to RGB, HV, or RGBS, you could simply do so with individually shielded cables. So you don't have to worry about some crazy adapter and soldering to tiny little things. You could just pick up some basic adapters if you want RCA, a fairly cheap adapter if you're looking for SCART, and a very, very cheap adapter if you're looking for VGA, because there's tons of uh, ways to break that stuff out. So I know there were a couple of people that were confused about BNC, and then some people viewed it as more of a prosumer product, which I guess is fair. But it's super easy to adapt that because remember, it's just a connector type, not the signal. All the signals are still accepted um, and you would just then need to adapt your cabling to it, which is going to get easier. I'll explain that in a second. But um, so I really do think it was a great choice. There's options for everybody out there. And it also keeps the morph smaller and less expensive because you would be shocked to find out how much things like BNC connectors, VGA connectors, SCART connectors, and all that stuff cost. This adds up so much more than you would think. And it also adds to things like the size of the the PCB, the size of the case, and all of that adds up to a lot more cost to you. So while this is just a gut feeling, and while the product isn't 100% finalized yet, I think having BNC, in, BNC inputs was probably a good idea for this, because it could support everything that you'd be looking to, plus HDMI input. If you want more details on that, I would start by going through Alex's post here because he laid it out pretty pretty clearly on everything that you might want to need, and then uh, or any info that you might need. And then Pixel Effects themselves also posted some pretty detailed write-ups of this. But I do want to put that on the back burner and talk about the other project that they've just announced, and that's the Infinity Switch. And this is... Basically, a switch that you build inputs piece by piece that will be able to support pretty much any signal type and any connector type, and you could build it in any way you'd like. And this is awesome for so many different reasons. So let's just say you're starting out in retro gaming now and you have a total mixture of different signals. You could pick up the morph, you could pick up as many of these modules as you would like, and you could input your VGA, your SCART, your component, your composite, whatever else that you want, all of your HDMI choices into this, piece them all together into a main module, and then plug in your morph and it will automatically detect what consoles plugged into each, and you could auto-switch, control it with the Morph's menu. It's really meant as a companion to the Morph scaler itself. But I also love how if you already are in the retro gaming world, and you already have something like, maybe you have a G-SCART switch for eight of your SCART components, and you have a G-Comp switch for eight of your component video sources, and you still want to control it all through the Morph, and you don't want to have to mess with multiple inputs buy just a couple of modules, buy the SCART module, buy the component video module, and you could integrate this into your existing setup without 
without having to get rid of any of the stuff that you've already invested your money in, which is awesome because I just, I'm such a fan of products that by themselves are cool, but also lift up all of the other products around it. So if you already own an existing Switch situation that you like, you should be able to pretty easily integrate this in. And some of the questions I get all the time in the Q&As are about how to do things like integrating a full component, a full RGB, and some S-Video stuff into one. And if you planned on using the morph, this would definitely be how to do it. Um, they also have some other interesting ideas planned for the modules that uh, I'm not going to talk about here because I don't want to confuse things, but it seems like a lot of functionality and a lot of features that might be one of those things where it's like, ah, do we spend the time to put it in the morph? It's going to add cost. Will everybody use it? Features like that should be expandable into the infinity switch. So while the morph itself is very awesome and I'm certainly looking forward to seeing it and seeing how it performs, all of the extra stuff that they talked about over the years might still be able to happen, but through this. So I think it's all positive. I like everything about this. I, I certainly think that there's potential for everybody. And the thing that I'm most happy is there's now choices for everybody. If you just have a couple of old consoles and you have the old composite and S-Video cables and you just want to get it working, grab a Tink Mini. It's absolutely perfect. There's nothing wrong with that. It's zero lag. It does a great job. It'll process the image correctly. But, you know, you got yourself a 4K TV and you want to do some crazy stuff to it. Now there's options like the Tink 5X, the upcoming Morph, and I'd love to see how the OSSC Pro fits into all of this. And I really do think that each of these solutions is going to be unique. And there's going to be situations where they're all a good fit. So, uh, you know, I think this is just one of those happy competition times where all of these companies and all of these people are awesome. They're making great stuff. And I think it's just about picking which one is right for you. So the delivery time should be this summer. Of course, there is a global part shortage happening with things that you wouldn't even expect would be on a shortage, but the team's pretty confident that they'll be able to pull this off. And uh, we'll, we'll, of course, let everybody know if there's pre-orders, if there's a release date, or all of those other details. But uh, if you want more details on the basics, check out Alex's post. He's got everything covered. And if you want all of the details about all of this, I would also swing back and check out the Pixel FX announcement uh, that kind of details it a little bit more as well. But definitely exciting stuff. Uh, and, and what a very cool time to be a retro gamer. I recently just interviewed Dave and Pat from Sega Saturn Shiro, uh, and as you could probably tell, it went really well. <laughs> we had a very entertaining discussion for you know just over an hour or so uh, where I got to get to know them, and uh, my guess of what it would be like was spot on. They're just as awesome as they seem from their own podcast, uh, and we got along so well that before we were even done with that talk, we uh, I invited them to to join retro RGB in any way that they would like, whether it's an occasional poster, more, it doesn't really matter to me. I'm just very, very grateful to have them on board. And as you could already uh, tell from me gushing over those two posts, they've already contributed so much and in a way that I could not have done myself. So they bring in their knowledge and their love for Sega to retro RGB, and they're doing it in a way, as you've already seen, that can introduce you to all of the stuff that they work on, and then you could decide from there where you want to go. I strongly recommend subscribing to them, but if you're a Saturn super fan, you probably are going to have a new favorite site and YouTube channel to go to. Uh, and if you just kind of want to have more of the mainstream Saturn stuff, they'll be covering it here, so you could still keep in touch for all of the things that you might be interested in. Um, overall, though, just 
two very cool people. I'm really glad I finally had the time to reach out. And throughout the whole interview, all I was thinking is, I can't believe I didn't reach out sooner. I've been following them for so long. I know I've been busy, but why didn't I just send them a message and do this before? You know, very cool people that I'm, I'm so happy and excited to introduce to all of you and be partnering with and working on different projects with. Uh, and, you know, I hope their channel gets huge because I think they really deserve it. So please check out the interview if you're interested. It's available everywhere on all audio-only podcast services, as well as on a YouTube video and everywhere else you could find mainstream videos. Crix has just released a new firmware for the Game Boy Advance EverDrive that fixes a potential issue saving on the analog pocket with games that use EEPROM saves. So it's a pretty specific issue that if you're not having, you might not need to worry about it. But if you throw on this firmware update anyway, there is no negative side of it. It doesn't take anything away. It's just a fix for those models that have the issue. But the very specific issue is use with the analog pocket games with EEPROM saves, and if those games don't save, this should fix it. But it doesn't affect every hardware revision, it's just a very weird thing. And I honestly just think this is a result of Analog not having the resources to test every revision of every ROM cart that's ever been released. I don't get any vibes other than they did their best to test all of this stuff, and that's what we got. And it's, it's kind of interesting to see the trolls on both sides who just don't at all understand what it's like to release a product. And I don't mean that so insulting because it is, a, you know, it's one of those ignorant things where if no one ever told you, how would you ever possibly know? Uh, but they are being trolly about it. So I definitely wanted to address the whole thing of all the people that are like, oh, Analog didn't even bother to test with ROM carts. I'm sure they did, but they might just not have had the revision of the EverDrive GBA that could have possibly had this issue, or maybe it just didn't happened to them at all and it worked fine analog i don't think is to blame uh, one person i do want to shout out is Crix, though because he continues to support this stuff long after it's a finished and stable product and he would be well within his right to not address the problem at all or just to say something like hey i designed these for use on original hardware the pocket isn't original hardware so it's not my problem he would have every right in the world to say that but he didn't instead he throws it on a scope he digs in and starts testing the stuff and tries his best to come out with fixes. So props to Cricks, but I also don't think any shade needs to be thrown at analog at all. It's a brand new product. Now that things are out in the wild, I'm sure there's going to be a ton of bugs that they would have never even anticipated and give them some time. If they fix this stuff or at least try to, cool. If not, then get mad. But, you know, some time needs to be had for this. So I, I just wanted to put that into perspective. I, I think it's a positive thing all around. I know it does absolutely stink if you just bought a pocket, you received it, and you have your ROM cart, and there's no jailbreak for the pocket, and your ROM cart is having issues. So I understand the, frust uh, the frustration, and I do totally, totally get it. But I just think that we all need to take a moment to understand how these projects get put into light. And even if it was a big company, it still would be impossible to check every revision of everything. So I think it's just a totally normal thing. Um, if you want the firmware, it's right here. If you want to purchase a Game Boy Advance EverDrive, I dropped links for that as well. So, you know, I, I just wanted to add some perspective and positivity to this because uh, I just I see a lot of hate getting flung around lately. And I just don't think any of it's warranted on either side, at least in this specific situation. 
I just wanted to give a very quick update to the Clear NES Shell project from Retro Game Restore. That's still available to pre-order right now, so if you'd forgotten, please put your pre-order in to make sure that this project happens and that we were all able to get one. But also, Castlemania Games has opened pre-orders on their site as well. So if you have Castle Cash or if you've already pre-ordered a bunch of other of the Retro Game Restore shells through them, now you could just add this one right to the list. So just a very quick update and a reminder about the project because I'm very excited for it and I'm really looking forward to checking it out because if it's as good as the other shells that I've bought from them this is going to be a fun one and I'm really looking forward to, to checking it out on a live stream again and breathing some uh, new life into a Swiss cheesed NES that I have sitting here. One quick thing before I get to the last section, Yehel and I are going to do another playthrough of Thunder in Paradise on the Philips CDI. That's going to be this Thursday, so the day after this airs. So last time it was hilarious, and I just wanted to invite everybody to come check out that live stream Thursday night as well. Uh, and also check out the music video thingy that we did, because it's one of my favorite things I've ever done. <laughs> I saved this for last because in order to properly represent what happened, I have to go into detail. But if you just want the short, short version, give me like 20 seconds. Basically, Hyperkin was selling a product that violated the JC Video Terms of Service and Limited Run Games was pimping it for them. And the community called them out. I created a post about it that I thought was pretty fair, firm but fair. And the two companies' responses, Limited Run Games immediately removed it from their store. And Hyperkin followed suit quickly after, saying they're no longer going to be selling the product. So uh, while I will go into detail in a second and explain why this was even important in the first place, I think the most important thing to recognize here is that everybody makes mistakes everybody. It's how you handle those mistakes that define you. And both of these companies just stepped immediately up to the plate and handled it. So they both get props. They both get my, uh, my, my genuine thanks for handling it that way. And I think this is a really good sign of how they're treating creators in the re uh, retro gaming and in the open source community. So uh, if that's all you needed to hear, feel free to drop off. There's nothing too important after this. Uh, just skim the links if you want you know, to double check or anything like that. But I guess give me a moment to go in to the full detail on what happened if you care about this, because the repercussions of what could have happened could have rippled down in all of retro gaming and it would not have been a good thing. So uh, I guess the better way to say it is allow me to explain why it's really awesome that it ended the way that it did. Okay, so I'm going to break this up into sections and explain the what, the why, and all of that other stuff. Uh, and I'm going to do it in different sections, because while I'm very proud of the fact that I don't use jump cuts, because I try really hard to get the information out the way I mean it as best that I can, this is one of those times where it's in, in, in the best interest of everybody else's time that I get each of these sections streamlined down as quickly as I can. So here's the what. Hyperkin was selling a product called the Armor 3 New View HD Adapter that had a few major issues with it. First and foremost, even if you have no moral issues about open source licenses, they change the code enough so that you can't update over software. And right there, that's just a media red flag that you don't want to buy it because here's an $80 adapter 
that's the same $80 as other choices out there that cannot be updated via software. And it's been speculated that you would have to do a lot of work to upgrade via hardware. So why would you buy a device that's the same price as a bunch of others out there that can be updated via the software update method if you're on GC Video 3.0 or higher? Or the Retrobit adapter has a USB port built right in so you could just update it on your computer like most other devices. So there is zero reason to buy this regardless of what else that happened. It's just nobody who uh, who messes with retro gaming stuff and sees all the updates that come through would ever want this. So right off the bat, it's a crappy product. Um, but the other issue and what sparked the controversy was that when they modified this code, they didn't just remove the ability to update. They removed all credit for the original creator of the project, Ingo Corb. And as far as I know, the open source license that Ingo chose basically said, anybody could use this and make this, but you have to still credit the original creator. So that's as simple of a request as you could possibly imagine. And it's just a direct violation. There were some trolls out there trying to make trouble saying it wasn't, it is, and that, that's it. There is no gray area there. But some perspective, right? So in in the context of what we're talking about, somebody who's donated thousands of hours across years of their life to give a product to the world for free for retro gaming gets their credit taken away? That's really, really shitty, and everybody should have been upset about this. But the flip side is, Ingo doesn't get paid royalties for GC Video, so... While this is shitty, it didn't steal money out of anybody's pocket. This isn't like the clone scenario where somebody's product is cloned and the original seller stops making money. This is just one of those situations that in and about itself, it's horrible. But when you compare it to other stuff out there, it's actually not that big of a deal. But it's great that the retro gaming community called it out. So that is that is the what as far as why the product is called out. You can update it, which immediately makes it useless compared to the other solutions out there. Uh, and um, it was in direct violation of the open source terms. So now on to how this happened. While this is speculation, this is something that applies to pretty much all products that you could imagine. And if you don't really know how these things are made, it could be some good insight into this stuff. But this product was a rebrand redistributed by Hyperkin. And that very often is a good thing because there's been a ton of products out there that Hyperkin discovered, rebranded and distributed through them that are very cool that we would have never gotten. Things like Virtual Boy stands and some visors and some stuff that like, it's just cool and we all could use it. And if it wasn't for Hyperkin, we probably wouldn't have been able to get them or at the very least get them as cheap. Now, Hyperkin also does this with a bunch of awful products that I wish they never would, but credit where credit's due. So this is a rebrand, and that's how it ended up in Hyperkin's hands. And how did this issue with the GC video code happen? Well, the first part, the rebrand is fact. What I'm about to say is speculation, but it definitely applies to a lot of different scenarios in that... Um, there could be a couple of reasons for this. Number one, it could have just been a mistake. It could have just been some developers going in there and saying, all right, let's just make this a stripped down version. I don't want to support it. So let's remove updates and that's it. And they accidentally deleted the name. Um, it could have been nefarious. Well, screw them. We're going to take this product and we're going to sell it. 
uh, or it could have been a good. Uh, it could have been intent, intended as a good thing. So a rookie dev could have gone, "Hey, we're we're changing this code so much that we don't want to have to bother the original creator. So let's just remove their name from it, and that way we won't bug them for support for our things." Now, what should have happened, regardless whether it was an accident, whether it was intentional, whether it was meant as a good thing. What should have happened is that their quality control team saw that and said, hey, that's in violation of the license. This is an easy product to make. Let's just follow the rules. And of course, Hyperkin should have vetted the product before they distribute it, which no surprise that they probably didn't at all. But, you know, baby steps here. So that's kind of my speculation as to how this happened mixed with the fact of the redistribution. And it's just important to keep that in mind because while this was a problem and while it should have been called out, it could very well have not been meant to be that way. Now, there it could have also come from a clone company that rebrands stuff that's cloned for other companies and they did this on purpose because they're a clone company. So it's very good that it was called out but it could very well have just been an accident or just a basic mistake. Okay, now on to why this was important. And Hyperkin and Limited Run Games have to be talked about separate because they're two completely different things. But starting with Hyperkin, this is important because of Hyperkin's path in the past. So not only do they sometimes sell really terrible products alongside some really good ones. But there was an incident a few years ago where code for the Retron 5 was pretty much stolen. There was code on there that was not ever allowed for commercial use. It was just to be downloaded yourself to be used. There was some open source code, and there was also some open source code that was used against the terms of that open source. And they I don't think it was nefarious. I think they basically were like, whatever, the code's out here, let's just use it. And obviously that was the wrong thing to do. So after this information came out to the public, I interviewed there at the time, one of their project managers, Chris Galizzi, who was really great to talk to. He explained how it happened and how, more importantly, he was taking steps to make sure that that didn't ever happen again at Hyperkin. And I thought that was really a great interview. I hope to talk to him again at some point, even though he's not with Hyperkin, just for the hell of it. Uh, And it, it was a really great sign that Hyperkin paid attention to the community and said, all right, you know, these aren't just people who dump these projects out and walk away. There's an active scene. There are people, you know, who are passionate about this. And they didn't do that again. And in fact, they tried to work with the community on a couple of different projects. And while I wasn't part of it, I did from the outside looking in, the people involved did kind of seem to treat them shitty. So when I saw this pop up, I was really afraid that Hyperkin, after trying to work with the community and having not everybody, but a few people not be that nice, I I was afraid that they were like, you know what, fuck the community. You know, we tried our best and they shoved their middle fingers in our faces, so let's just steal the code again. And they did not do that. They confirmed afterwards, like I said before, that this was just an accident. So, but now hopefully you understand the why, why people get so upset. Oh, is Hyperkin just going to steamroll through? Because if they did that, I know so many creators that would just stop open sourcing their stuff. Because while they're pretty excited to see somebody step up to the plate and recreate it, or even seeing a bigger company do it, but do it right, and at least give the community the sense that they're working with us, even if they're 
not, and they're just reading and following the directions, that's close enough. And there's a lot of developers I know that would have just been like, you know what, I'm not going through this again. You know, I, I contribute all of my time and efforts for everybody, but not to just make some big faceless company a lot of money. And that's not what happened. So it's really cool. The why was very important from that aspect. And the answer that we got as a result is very good and reassuring. I'm not trying to say Hyperkin's the best company ever. I'm not trying to fanboy them. They're not a sponsor of the podcast or anything like that. I'm just saying we. it seems like nothing's changed. They're still doing their best to work with the community while making money like they have to. They are a company and still selling some total garbage. Hopefully they'll listen to that and that kind of plays into what's coming next. Now on to why I have a problem with limited run games pimping this. And I do have to preface this with a couple of things in that first and foremost, I am not a hater of the company. I've disagreed with some of the ways they've approached things, but overall I have a lot of respect for what they do. I have defended them to trolls, even though it's rough sometimes because they have a lot of haters that just love to have any excuse to shit on them. And I have the utmost respect for Josh. We kept in touch a little bit after the interview and, and he's just, you know, I just respect what he's trying to do and what the company's trying to do. So this is just coming from a place of my experience and how it affects the rest of the gaming community. Because that's the other thing, is while picking on limited run games this time, what I'm about to say affects all large sellers of stuff like this. So my problem with limited run games pimping this is that first and foremost, they make a ton of money doing a really great job whether you agree with me or not, I think they do as good a job as anybody could have in their position getting physical copies of games out to people. They've done some jobs better than others, but they're trying their best. They make a lot of money on it. There's no reason to dip their toes in a market that has nothing to do with them that requires an entirely different set of expertise. And I teased Josh years ago on Twitter about this when I said, you selling HDMI cables for consoles is like me giving ballet lessons. What the fuck are you doing? And it was being silly, but honest at the same time. So that starts off the, the tone for what's coming because that comment about not having the expertise to understand the products you're selling is important. Because they do have the expertise for the for the games that they sell, but they don't understand the repercussions that them or any other large reseller has when they're selling these garbage HDMI products. Now, this one, the Armor 3, at the end of the day, it was just a GC video product. So yeah, it sucks that you can't update it, and it really sucks that they violated the license. It's not bad. It's not like it adds lag. It's still GC video, which is awesome. But the fact that they're still selling HDMI devices without ever checking on what they're selling, because if they asked anybody in the gaming scene about that beforehand, anybody who's familiar with the hardware that goes through retro gaming could have looked at that device and said, it's probably fine, but that looks very similar to devices that come out of a clone shop. So you should double check before selling it. They obviously didn't do that the same way they didn't check when they were selling the garbage cables from all of these different companies that add a ton of lag and ruin the gaming experience. So why does that matter? Uh, it's not just because I'm being critical of their trying to do things they're not experts in. It's because it ruins it for everyone in gaming. So here's a scenario I hear on a regular basis from so many people. They either wanted to play their old games or they're young, but they've discovered that the games that they enjoy playing are more plentiful on older consoles. So they don't really give a shit 
when they were made. They have no nostalgia for them. They just know that they love top-down shooters, whatever. So they want to get into retro gaming. So they go to a company like Limited Run Games, who is selling designed for video game console HDMI adapters. So they've done their diligence. They've looked it up. They see a company, a reputable company, sell it. Um, They've probably bought games from Limited Run Games before and had a decent experience. They plug it in and they can't figure out why they can't time their jumps because it's not their business to try to figure out what three to five frames of variable lag is. They bought a device that says for gaming. And, you know, hey, why is there a flicker to this? Why am I getting a headache after playing certain games on it? Uh, They have no reason to know what 240p being treated as 480i is. No one should ever know that except developers. But they don't know it. All they know is their gaming experience sucks. So we very often just lose those people forever. Oh, I guess these aren't as good as I remember them. Oh, you know, these aren't as good as other people said. I'll stick to other stuff. And the people that I talk to are people who luckily told their experience to a friend who is a retro gaming nerd who said, well, wait a minute, how did you play the game? And that's what got them back into it. And those are the people that I get to meet. And there's tons, nonstop, almost every day I still get messages or get tagged in posts like that. Almost every day I get that. So how many people didn't have a friend that was into retro gaming that we lost forever? So why does that matter? matters for everybody. Limited run games doesn't get a second sale for another set of HDMI cables, and they don't get another sale if maybe they have uh, an original or a reprint of a game on an original cartridge for that same console. That person probably would have bought that, and now you've lost those sales. But everybody in gaming hurts from it too. You know, YouTubers or people with websites like myself don't have another person who might have really gotten into the content. People who make retro gaming hardware probably lose a sale. People who create games on retro platforms probably lost a sale because they don't even bother on that uh, playing a game if they think that that's the experience that they're going to get. And that's why I get so upset with bigger companies. Because the big difference with mom and pop shops is you have somebody that comes in in that same scenario. You could just have the conversation of, look, it's really hard to play older games on new TVs. If you have an old CRT laying around, you don't even need to buy anything. You know, buy one of the games off the shelf, use the cables you have. And if you want to play it on a flat panel, there's some paths to take. And if they say, you're just lying to sell some stuff, you know, uh, give me the cheap cable. You could say, hey, that's totally cool. Try it. But if you don't like it, please come back and we'll hook you up. If it's good enough for you, awesome. So even if the person doesn't believe that mom and pop shop and they go home and it sucks, at least that's in the back of their mind. And, you know, people's egos are different. Maybe they'll come back to that shop. Maybe they'll go online because they're too embarrassed to, but at least they'll know. But you go to a big seller like Limited Run Games, there's no interaction. There's no, hey, by the way, this might suck. So if you're playing a turn-by-turn RPG with not much movement, hey, this is actually a pretty darn good solution. But you're playing a shooter, you want to play Super Mario, don't don't get this. There is none of that. There is just people going to a store that looks reputable, that has a big global reputation, trying to trust their products. And that's what I tried to get through to Josh that he just didn't see at all. And that's what I try to get through to every major reseller and that you're losing customers. You think you're gaining customers because you got the sale, but you're losing future customers for anybody that doesn't figure out that the stuff that you're selling is garbage. So once again, there was no real performance issue with the Armor 3. I'm not 
I'm not annoyed with limited run games for for selling this particular product. I'm annoyed because why are they still not vetting the stuff that they sell? I know it's nice to get some extra revenue in. They're a business. People often forget that. People often treat limited run games as if they're supposed to be people taking one for the team and donating their time to get these games put on physical releases. No, they're a company that needs to pay their bills just like all other companies. So if they have to expand their lineup, fine. But get somebody in or at least ask somebody to make sure that the products you're selling aren't killing the community for everybody else. I've offered to Josh and I got completely blown off. And once again, these are still people I like and respect. So I'm not sending the pitchforks down the line. I'm just being very honest with all of you in that I have offered to help because I know there's going to be at least one comment is why'd you talk shit for 10 minutes and you didn't even bother helping I did I tried and I'll the door is always open I, I thought I got along with them and you know I think actions speak louder than words I think my defense of them all the time shows that I'm not out to get them but I do think they're making a huge mistake by selling this garbage and I think they're hurting themselves and everybody else in gaming and so does every big company that sells this stuff can't really fault Hyperkin, because while I would not make the decision to sell this, uh, I could completely imagine that if their team goes to them and says, hey, we're losing future sales, we're selling people garbage, we're flooding the market with garbage, and which is hurting our chance to follow up with a good product, I could totally imagine their board of directors going, oh, oh really, fuckface, then why did we sell like 30,000 of them last year? We're fine, we're going to keep selling them. I, I don't agree, I don't like it, but I could completely understand why Hyperkin would continue to sell that stuff. I just really wish somebody in their organization would step up to the plate and say, hey, please look ahead. Please look ahead five years, 10 years. We could be selling so much more of these for so many other devices. We just got to sell better stuff. So I think that pretty much sums it up. So I think that pretty much sums it up. So I guess in hindsight, to short, short version, go down the bullet point of all of this stuff. Uh, there is no problem anymore. Both limited run games and Hyperkin stepped up to the plate and they should be commended for that. That is good. The, the fact that an accident happened and the product sold sucks, uh, but it's an accident. It was very clearly an accident and I'm glad that they stepped up to the plate. I do hope that they learn from this too, because if next year three products come out that are all in violation, Hyperkin didn't learn their lesson. But I don't think so. I don't get that impression. I think they're making an effort, even a small one, to do this. I hope Limited Run Games put some effort in to putting some thought into the products they sell and the repercussions that it might have. But more importantly, today, right now, they get high fives, both of them, because they did what was right, and hopefully they use this to regroup. Uh, also, a big shout out to Ingo Korb, because he created the GC Video Project, and he gave it to all of us. And he could have absolutely gone on Twitter and be like, you know, let's burn them all down. But he didn't. He asked a bunch of questions. I DM'd with him. We discussed it. Um, you know, he just, he, he approached this with like a level-headed nerd would. Give me all the facts. I want to learn everything about this and we'll go from there. And everything seemed to be to work itself out in the end. Good enough, at least. So, you know, in conclusion, there's a good ending to this. I just really hope that the companies that are involved just put a little thought going forward into how they could prevent this from ever happening again. Well, that's it for this time. I guess I probably could have put that last section in its own video, but I don't like doing that. First of all, I don't like conforming to YouTube's rules. Uh, the weekly podcast is something people rely on to get all of their information in one place, not individually. 
But also, I didn't want to come across as a drama video because it wasn't. While, yes, there were some negative things said in that, it, almost the entire thing that I just described was positivity and why we should be happy that it ended the way it did. So I just, I didn't want to get labeled a drama video when it totally wasn't meant to. I figured it's just easier to stick it in here. And I'm sorry that it was so long, but I mean, it's just one of those things where we have to explain ourselves sometimes. We unfortunately live in a world where most people take that tweet as all of the knowledge. And I mean, think about it. What if I had just summed that up as uh, Hypergate and Limited Run Games sold stuff in violation of open source and then left it at that? That's not fair to anybody. So I really felt like this time needed the extra explanation because you wouldn't have understood why people got so mad the history of it, the, what it, the implications are in the future. But I do want your feedback and I want your feedback both in uh, what I talked about, because it's totally fine to completely disagree with everything I said. Just try not to be a total asshole while doing it. Uh, but I also want your feedback on the format and the way in which I explained it. Did I just bore everybody to death and lose everybody? Um, did it, did you like it broken up? Did you Would you rather have me done a quick three minute version as quickly as I possibly could? Uh, but I, I always want to try to make this better for everybody. So, you know, please just give me your feedback at whatever you can. Also, if you're a fan of Pushing Up Roses, you totally got the stupid joke that I made. If you're not, it wasn't a dig. I just, I love her silly dad jokes and she does them way better than I could ever pull off. So that wasn't a dig. That was a, a high five compliment at the end of that. But um, so yeah, hopefully all of this went well. Hopefully, uh, you know, talking about limited run games, Hyperkin analog and pushing up roses isn't going to get me canceled. Who knows? So hopefully I'll still around next week and <laughs> no one took four words out of context and tried to burn me to the ground because they're a limited run games troll or something. I, I, I don't know. But um, overall, I, I just hope everybody enjoyed this week's podcast. I hope you enjoy what's going to be coming next because there's still a lot more changes and I'm trying my absolute hardest to try to grow this for everybody. So thank you if you still made it and you sat through all of that. Thank you if uh, you're somebody that comments nicely and especially thank you to anybody who supports in any of these services because without you, none of this stuff would have ever happened. So thank you all so much and I'll see you next week. <laughs>